Warm welcome to everyone. We're here with the first episode of Reading World Literature Conversation. I'm joined here today uh, with three students in Boston University's special seven-year medical education program. They're first-year students studying medical science and another minor not related to medicine. They're pursuing their degree in medicine in only seven years. They're not uh, as experienced in medicine as perhaps medical students or doctors, but they certainly have an interesting insight into some of the themes brought up in this week's book of discussion, The Death of Ivan Illich. Without further ado, let's welcome our three guests to the podcast. We first up have Shonmugesh Raja. Uh, we have Dhruv Manik and Jason Zahn. Hello. Hi, Hi, I'm Jason. Okay, let's get into it. Today we'll be asking five questions for our medical guests, uh, and we'll see what their insights are onto some of the medical themes brought up in the book. In the death of Ivan Illich, Ivan first describes his interaction with his physician as following. It was with just that brilliance that the doctor triumphantly, even exultantly, made his diagnosis, looking down at his glasses at the accused. It is well known that most medical schools aspire to produce academic physicians, evidenced by the unspoken but universally accepted rule that all medical school applicants must pursue at least some research experience as an undergraduate. Moreover, for many clinical medical specialties, research and publications during medical school are a must-haves for the match. Do you believe that this cultural emphasis on scientific and academic aspects of medicine distracts from the soft skills physicians need to empathetically interact with patients? If so, how do you think medical education ought to be restructured to help doctors learn the challenging art of emotionally resonating with their patients? I'm going to start off with this question. Um, I'm Sean Magesh. Um, I think it's pretty interesting question, but uh, I actually kind of disagree with it a little bit. I don't think uh, research and uh, the empathy that physicians ought to develop in you know, medical school and residency, et cetera, are you know, like mutually, mutually exclusive. I've seen a lot of physician scientists that conduct research and also you know, see patients uh, almost on a daily basis. And it's not like they're any less empathetic than you know, your family practice position that you see for your well checkup exams or something. Um, and I, I don't think uh, research necessarily detracts from empathy, which is why I feel like what the question is getting at. Um, research is just something that like a lot of doctors do when they're very interested in pushing the boundaries of like the medical knowledge in the community. Um, and I think that's, there's some space there between the research that they practice and the you know the practice sorry the research they do and the practice that they have with their patients um so i don't necessarily think that you know their empathy necessarily like decreases um but i think the second question is a little bit more interesting though when it says how does um how should medical education be restructured and i was talking to a couple of doctors you know during some of my shadowing experiences and this is actually what they felt like. Um, there's, there's a group of doctors that always graduate residency and stuff who are very independent. They were good at diagnosing, they're good at speaking. And so, you know, as soon as they uh, start practicing in their own clinic or, you know, any other hospital, they hit the ground running and they're off and they're doing their own thing pretty successfully. 
but there's also some doctors who need help with that uh, because there's a lot of fear in uh, diagnosing people for the first time by yourself. In residency, you have oversight, but you know when when you're doing it by yourself for the first time, it can be scary. And you know there's a lot of things that a lot of doctors run into, and so people have been arguing, or doctors specifically, that medical education ought to be restructured to help those doctors more that need help so that they um, they can match up with those more independent doctors, um, that they should be given a bit more training or a bit more facilitation in their practice to give them greater help. Because, you know, not every single doctor is like an amazing doctor. And I think people have come to terms with that. But I think the system can do more to level them up and make more doctors like more successful overall. Thank you, Sean Mugesh. So I'm going to piggyback off of what Sean Mugesh said. So I agree with Sean Mu. Um, I believe that uh, being a scientist and being a physician are two completely two different things. Um, if you become a scientist, that doesn't necessarily mean that you become a physician. The, the uh, medical school process, the medical education process is already a truly like rigorous uh, process. Um, not a lot of people make it through um, either because they're not um, they can't handle the academic work. Um, they can't handle the uh, empathetic part of uh, medicine. And I feel like the people who truly do make it through um are best equipped at uh, doing their jobs. Um, obviously, it's not a 100% uh, perfect uh, process because not every doctor is going to be the most empathetic, not every uh, physician is going to be the most knowledgeable. But I believe that, um, especially if you're going to be in charge of a patient's health, you have to be very knowledgeable about your subject. You have to be very, um, very, uh, well-structured on your fields of study. So I believe that academics, um, focusing on the academics is not a bad thing whatsoever. And also I believe in medical school, they do have a lot of um, individual training, a lot of formal training on how to uh, uh, interact with patients and everything. And I believe it's doing its job really well. Um, yeah, I think, especially if you as a patient are going into a uh, physician's office to be treated, I think first and foremost, you want them to know what they're talking about and know the scientific processes behind uh, certain diagnoses, certain um, uh, medical conditions. So yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I don't think it's like Sean Mugesh said, I don't think it's mutually exclusive whatsoever. Um, I don't think there's a problem with it, to be honest. Yeah, I would agree. Thank with you for that insight, Jason. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that because a lot of academic medicine is actually based around clinical research where physicians actually have to interact with patients, you know, uh, give them questionnaires, get their detailed history. And a lot of that uh, interaction during that research really builds on their empathy skills and it really um, shows them a new aspect of medicine. Um, so I don't think they're really mutually exclusive, the academic and clinical medicine. And also, I think one way medical education could be restructured to help doctors learn about uh, the emotional needs of their patients is by making sure that they're exposed to a diverse patient population, um, especially patients who come from like uh, underprivileged, underprivileged backgrounds. Um, they have problems outside their uh, personal life. And I think 
you know, helping those, uh, uh, you know, people of different socioeconomic statuses uh, will really help the patient, uh, physicians connect to them on an emotional level. Thanks, Drew. I think Drew. That was a valuable insight. Yeah, I think Drew makes a really good point there. And I think we see that um, increasing over time as well. Um, like, at least personally in my community that I've seen, um, especially during the pandemic, you know, it's it's no secret that COVID-19 hit uh, minorities, especially African-Americans, the hardest, right? And um, I feel like, at least near me, that I saw a lot of hospitals uh, very actively, you know, in, in create a lot more like diversity, equity, and inclusion type um, meetings uh, or like com committees to kind of discuss like how those hospitals can step in and support those communities more. And I think um, that kind of behavior that we see doctors that a practice do uh, is a pretty cool thing to, um, that, uh, that would be interesting to see be included more in the medical education you know, for specifically for med students, right? Um, you know, I've talked to a couple of African-American medical students and like the main thing that they would probably like bring up is, you know, in the colleges that they've been to, they have a lack of experience. And like, um, you know, when they, when they go into medical school, they really feel the color of their skin. And so things like that, I feel like can help, can be like included more in the restructuring because I think diversity is going to be a bigger thing when we, when we look into the medical community uh, on and on onward. That was very interesting. I think this and is an our, important um, point. In our uh, program, we have a bunch of seminars and um, like, especially for the first year that we, uh, we all are, all are in, uh, we have a lot of uh, seminars and programs going over like skills that we kind of have to keep in mind before we go into medicine. And one that's coming up for us is diversity and inclusion. And I think that's a really important um, thing to include because it kind of shows how early on, especially for our program, um, how early on they really try to teach us how to be empathetic uh, and how to deal with certain um, uh, backgrounds and uh, cultures that we never really heard of or never really experienced and don't have that much knowledge of. So I think... Um, especially learning early on, getting, uh, knowing what you're getting yourself into is a very, very important thing to um, kind of set uh, aspiring physicians up for trying to be more empathetic, trying to learn more uh, empathy skills, obviously. But all in all, I think that if you're going to be in, uh, go into medical school and uh, pursue the medical path, you should already be very, very uh, acclimated, acclimated with what uh, you're putting self, yourself into and the type of patient to patient, uh, pa I'm sorry, patient to physician uh, interactions that you're going to have to um, facilitate. So I genu gen generally think that our um, education is very geared towards uh, the holistic view of both academic and um, empathetic uh, values. Jason, I think it's very interesting how you brought up the, the diversity and inclusion seminar that uh, you guys in your program um, are, are going to be experiencing. Uh, and it leads me to my next question for you all about whether, whether you believe empathy to be something that's innate 
or, or something that's learned. Actually, I'd like to jump in on that one. Um, I just a quick follow up to Jason's last statement. I think it's a I think it's a very important point. And having been in this program, you know, one of the main questions that everyone asks us, and you guys know this for sure, right, is that why do you want to be why do you want to go to medical medicine? You know, why do you want to be a doctor, right? And I, all of us definitely prepped after the interview. <laughs> um, but I I disagree a little bit to a certain extent to what Jason said, because, um, you know, in high school and all that stuff, we do all that shadowing and research and we try to figure out like what the medical career is all about. I, I feel like we just see a very small microcosm to what it, it really is on a day-to-day basis. Um, that's just my opinion. I just feel like we don't uh, see the, the, the true intensity of it. Um, and so because of that, like, I definitely think part of us, you know, especially in a program like a BSMD program, you're, you're putting in kids that, don't do we really know like what we're getting ourselves into like we know it's hard we know med school's brutal we know it's a whole monster of its own but we don't really know what practicing every day is like you know we don't really know what like surgery or you know even being a family medicine doctor is really like and I feel like that that same feeling transfers to a lot of other people who apply to medical school because I feel like when when you talk to like med school admission people and stuff like that they always put up the the idea that oh if you go into medicine you need to be 100 percent sure about it um but what if you're not right like does that mean you can't like do medicine that successfully i feel like that side of the medical education should be like restructured for sure like you know what i mean because no one is ever going to fully know the extent of it do you guys agree with that to a certain extent or am i just yeah no i completely agree with your statement um yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, see what you disagree with me about, but I generally think that, see, a lot of people in like pre-med um, and even medical school drop out because, first of all, the academic uh, rigorousness of it, but also I feel like a lot of people don't really uh, know uh, what medicine entails until they have the shadowing experience, and I think that, um, I believe that shadowing is enough to see the type of patient to physician interactions that you're going to have because you're going to be following a physician all uh, around and you're also going to be um, uh, talking to uh, patients yourself. And I think that especially if you're going to a day-to-day basis with a physician, um, knowing what they go through, knowing what kind of interactions they go through, I think you kind of put yourself into that position and you also know what kind of uh, empathetic skills that you need to put yourself into. Obviously for things like, uh, loss or um, telling bad news. We don't necessarily know exactly how we're going to do that because that's a very, very deep, touchy subject. But I generally think that, um, uh, like for me, for example, I, when I was in high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I knew that I really wanted to, I really liked working with people and I didn't want an office job. And I was looking into things that I liked, which was like science, right? I need, um, I liked uh, uh, people. So I put those together and medicine was a great um, like mix between the two. So I feel like a lot of people who choose medicine also choose medicine because of the people. You know, Jason, I, I agree with you there. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there's a couple people, um, you know, maybe even us within the program 
who are just so determined for medicine. We see ourselves in this queer career and nothing else that when we go to medical school and beyond, like we're so sure of it, you know? Um, but I feel like um, there's probably like a population that get really disenfranchised with medicine because the kind of feeling that there is when you, especially in, even starting with pre-med and undergraduate, right? Is like, if you choose it, you need to be like 130% sure. Um, and it, those people who, you know, they work really hard and they still get into like medical school. I feel like there should be like greater support for the people that like can't perform to this, to the same extent. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there's no issue with, um, putting more, um, uh, efforts into teaching empathy and teaching other values of like, um, talking to uh, patients. I generally, uh, like, there's no issue with that whatsoever because more of that is definitely better. Um, but like going back to the original question, I really don't think that academic, um, putting pressure on academics doesn't really detract from the empathetics. So, yeah, yeah I, I agree with that, that, um, you know, putting emphasis on empathy, uh, learning about it is important, but I think it's important to realize that, uh, empathy is best learned through experience. Um, I wouldn't really say it's something you can learn in a classroom environment. So I think, you know, even clinical research, academic uh, projects like that, they give uh, the experience that really develops empathy and that's really hard to foster in a classroom. I think these are very, uh, very insightful points. It's very interesting to hear this from the perspective of someone who's entering into that field. I know that in the death of Ivan Illich is mostly told from the patient's perspective. And it's, it's really insightful to hear this from, from the caretaker's perspective. So uh, I think with that in mind, this leads us to our next question, uh, which is about Ivan's mental sufferings and his decline. Uh, near, near his death, uh, Ivan's physician noticed how uh, Ivan's physical sufferings were terrible, but even more horrible than his physical sufferings were his mental sufferings, his moral sufferings, his greatest torment. Later, Ivan asks himself, what if my whole life, my entire conscious life has been false? Now, even if you aren't a psychiatrist, do you believe it is within the realm of your role as a healthcare provider to help a patient manage their emotional burdens? If so, how would you care for a patient dealing with regrets about their life? Um, yeah, I would say um, it's definitely in the realm of... Uh physician's role to help a patient manage their emotional burdens, um, regardless of their specialty, you know, even if they're not a psychiatrist, because they're not just treating the patient's uh, disease or condition, they're treating the patient as a whole. Um, and, you know, a lot of the whole process of uh, treatment um, revolves around the patient's mental status. Um, you know, the patient's mental condition, their emotions can affect how well they adhere to a specific treatment. Um, how well they listen to listen to a doctor's orders. Um, so I think it's an important part of the patient to take into consideration. And if you see that a patient's dealing with regrets about their life, I think it's important to just get them to talk about the good parts of their life. Um, try to like bring up good memories, just stimulate some conversation. Um, and when they start talking about that, they start reflecting on their own life. I think they'll they can start to realize, you know, the amazing parts of their life, uh, the parts they enjoyed, and um, that can probably help relieve some of those regrets. 
Shunbugesh or Jason, do you guys have any insights onto this question? Yeah, um, I think it's very, uh, it's a lot uh, on the physician's responsibility to take care of the entire patient, the, the patient's entire well-being, rather than just a specialty, uh, a specific condition that they have. Um, but I also think that uh, it includes a lot of other people, like a whole medical team, right? Nurses, um, social workers, even their family. Um, I think it's all medicine is not necessarily just a one on one thing. It's 100 percent. You need a lot more people. You need a whole team to take care of a single person. Um, that's what I like so much about medicine is that um, it's 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 a group effort. Right. You're, it's not just one person trying to get everyone better. It's everyone trying to get this person better. Right. So I gen I genuinely think that um, if. You need to put more emphasis. Uh, I feel like physicians are a lot more of treating and diagnosing. And then um, especially uh, like at the uh, end of life, like loss, I feel like they need to step up in that uh, realm. But uh, nurses, uh, social workers, I feel like a lot of their responsibilities is also since they spend so much more time with the physician, oh, not the physician, <laughs> the patient. Um, they get to see more of the personal side of the patient's life, which I think is uh, uh, beautiful because that kind of uh, relationship that you build with uh, the patient can greatly change the uh, outcome of the uh, physician's uh, 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 treatment or their, their uh, uh, the, the disease, I guess. But um, yeah, I think that uh, mental health is really, really, really important part of the treatment of a physician. So whatever you do as a physician, as a nurse, as a social worker, you always have to keep in mind the mental state, um, the uh, emotional side of a physician, because that's equally as important as the physical side. Yeah, I think uh, I think you guys made really great points it took a lot of the words from my mouth <laughs> but um drew made a really good starting point you know etymologically a patient means sufferer i think a lot of doctors uh it's very easy to look at patients as numbers or just you know their diseases or chronic problems that they have and not really like who they are as a person you know their family their background where they come from uh, and I, I totally see where the question's coming from um I think we see it a lot today too. I mean, it's a pretty complex problem. Uh, you know, one doctor that I was talking to, you know, he he ranted to me because he was like, um, "I'm seeing patients in like 20 minutes. That's the time frame that I have because I have so many patients in my day. Um, but if one patient comes in, you know, and they're usually from a low socioeconomic position, and they're like, um, and he's like, "Yeah, you need to get dialysis." And the patient's like, "You know, what is dialysis?" And the the doctor turns to me and he's like, "How can I spend like?" two hours, you know, I would love to just sit down with their whole family and explain to them why they need dialysis, what situation that family's in, um, you know, what to do for it. Um, but they don't have the time or the bureaucratic system doesn't allow them to have the time to do that. And I think a lot of doctors regret that. And that's why you see like questions like these pop up. And, um, you know, I don't want to change from the question too much, but I think that's like a, an issue that should be looked for more in, in hospitals uh, to, to minimize, right? And I think, um, you know, to combine Jason's point, really, is that I think the future in what 
hospitals are doing and kind of the solution to that problem is this whole team-based care, right? You bring in the social worker, you bring in nurses, the PCP, you know, everyone um, to more successfully handle, um, you know, to really more successfully handle like letting the patient know what, what's going on, uh, you know, in- increase communication uh, with them um, because, you know, I wouldn't say this question is like, and it's unfair or, or Ivan's experience is unfair because, you know, so many people feel it and from very small degrees to large degrees. And it's definitely like a big problem that doesn't really stem from the, I wouldn't say the doctor, but just the whole, what, the way the system is set up. I think that's something that would be interesting to, you know, see, you know, maybe we can like try finding solutions, figuring out like what we could do better uh, as time goes on. So, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, especially the communication part, I really like how Shamu, uh, Shamu Gesh included that because a lot of uh, phys- a lot of patients, especially those of low socioeconomic uh, class, don't necessarily understand a lot of things, a lot of terminology that physicians are telling them because um, some people say that medicine is very uh, gatekeeping in terms of the uh, terminology, in terms of the uh, knowledge that a lot of people need to have uh, in regards to their uh, diagnoses, in regards in regards to their tr- uh, treatments, and I think especially having that empathetic and emotional um, role in a patient's life and a patient's treatment and a patient's diagnosis is very, very, very crucial and um, an important thing that you have to keep in mind when you're talking to a phys- uh, when you're talking to a patient, because you have to be able to make sure that they understand and they can take that emotional uh, burden. And putting emphasis on that is never a bad thing to do, especially if, because people, when physicians come into a, uh, uh, when, when patient, I'm sorry, I keep on mis- mixing up those two words. Um, when patients come into a physician's office, they're already really, really stressed. They're already have, uh, they know there's something wrong with their body and they're trying to come and fix it. Right. So what a, physician is trying, uh, the job of the physician is to make sure that they have all the information they need and uh, to let the uh, patient know that they have things under control and are able to treat um, the condition that the patient is concerned about. So I think that part of medicine is also something that needs to put a lot of emphasis in, um, especially going into the future. yeah, and I also wanted to kind of talk about uh, something like that has been a um, big part of today's uh, what's kind of relevant to today's society is the COVID uh, COVID situation, right? A lot of uh, family medicine, a lot of general uh, medicine is being moved to telemedicine, which is basically medicine over the internet, which a lot of people uh, really like, but a lot of people also uh, disagree with because you kind of lose that emotional connection that you build with these um, uh, patients because you can't really connect with someone online that much, especially if they're talking about um, your medical condition. You might as well just consult WebMD, right? So I really think that uh, having that physical, or not physical, but like having that one on one emotional connection with someone is very, very important if you want to take care of their well being.
thank you. Those were um, those were definitely interesting to to hear this from from that perspective. Um, I know that this is an issue that um, made that most definitely is not entirely due to the physician. It's due primarily to bureaucratic uh, institutions and the way that medicine is structured in general. And uh, thank you, Shanmugesh and Jason and Drew, for bringing up that aspect of it, uh, which I don't think. Uh, the death of Ivan Illich really touched upon. And, and we're going to continue our, our, our conversation about uh, Ivan's slow death to, to some of the things which he described as being the worst parts of dying. Uh, Ivan describes the worst part of dying as the hope that his friends and family try to impose on him, uh, that the following treatment will, will make him better and even possibly miraculously curved. And despite refusing to believe in the efficacy of homeopathic treatments earlier in his life, in a sort of desperation, uh, Ivan even considers turning to these homeopathic medicines when on his, when on his deathbed. Uh, if you see a patient's family or friends giving them dying, uh, get, giving them false hope when they're dying, do you think you ought to inform the patient that their hope is mislaid? Or, or, or do you think it's better to let this patient hold on to this hope? So I'd love to start off with this one because this one's pretty personal to me um, because uh, my grandfather on my father's side, actually, no, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, got cancer, right? And it's very common in Chinese tradition, I'm Chinese, um, is that um, whenever a, especially an elderly patient gets a diagnosis of uh, cancer or like a terminal illness, a lot of the family will withhold that information from them, which in American standards seems very, very uh, immoral and somewhat problematic. Jason, I think it's illegal in the, in America. It is illegal in America. You cannot withhold information from pa uh, patients whatsoever. But in China, um, they have this sort of, uh, instead of an individualistic um, sense of community, they have more of a, uh, I forgot what the word is. Someone help me out. More like communal, right? They like communal the whole family. Collective. I think, uh, right? We were talking about this. It's like the whole family takes the burden for uh, right for that one elder family member that's going through it. Right? They 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 in inherit the burden of their death. Exactly, and I think um, that is really interesting to know because there's also this this practice is also very um, rooted in this Chinese saying is that um, it's not the cancer that kills a patient, it's the fear of the cancer that kills the patient. So a lot of patients um, feel hopeless when they get, hear the diagnosis, the word cancer, because it seems like that's the end of them, right? But a lot of it has to do with your mental state. A lot of it has to do with um, uh, what you're feeling in the moment uh, while you're getting treatments. A lot of people, especially during hard treatments like chemotherapy, uh, get very disheartened uh, during that treatment because it's very, very hard to go through. It's very, very tough. It's a very rigorous, long, tedious process. And, um, but especially if you have um, very, like for the, for my example, um, the ignorance of not having these terminal illnesses is somewhat like blissful, I guess. To, to put things in a, in a, I don't know if that's the right word to say it, but it makes them kind of, um, 
ignorance to the 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 the, the uh, diagnosis that they have so that they can go on with life as if nothing really happened. Um, and the family's the one who's in control of their treatments of whatever's going on um, in their health. And they can live life just as um, uh, everything is. And especially, even if it is a terminal illness, I'm sorry, I'm kind of dragging this, but even if they are uh, like in the terminal stages of an illness, not knowing that you are in, I feel like a lot of people um, at that stage get really, really hopeless. And when they uh, uh, eventually pass, they live the last moments as extremely stressful, extremely sad, um, and extremely uh, depressing, right? But in this Chinese tradition, not knowing kind of gives this puts the burden on the family, like Shanmu said, rather than putting it on the individual patient. Um, and I think this is a concept seen in like the movie Farewell. I really love that movie. Um, if you haven't watched it, definitely go watch it. It's a beautiful, what a plug, beautiful Jason. movie. <laughs> and basically the storyline is pretty much the same thing. The uh, grandmother gets cancer and um, the family somewhat does this like somewhat elaborate fake wedding for her grand grandson uh, and uh, she doesn't know about her cancer and everyone does and everyone's going flying back to china visiting her so that they can spend quality time with her uh, at what is potentially the last moments of her life so that she can feel happy and safe without really having the burden and stress of knowing that you had a terminal illness yeah jason i think you make a, a really beautiful point there um, the question's tough. It's a, I, I feel like it's pretty complex. Like, um, y you know, so like, especially today, like, uh, I mean, so I know I asked Rishi, like when this book was published, he said it was a long time ago. So I know like medicine has changed and it's continually like evolving. And so what it is like these days is that more than the doctor, the patient has the highest authority, right? Um, you know, autonomy of the patient is very, uh, very important, at least in, in the United States, because like like in Jason's example, and like that in that sense, they give it off to the family. But here, you know, they in, they include the patient and the family, and they call kind of sit down. You know, the social workers they discuss the situation and they make the next move. The only major role the doctor plays in that sense is they kind of lay out all the facts. Um, I, I'm not really sure. You know, I could be wrong on this. I'm not really sure if they give a lot of their own opinion. Uh, but they at least tell the patient, like, hey, if you go through treatment, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is the time frame. This is et cetera. If you don't do the treatment, this is also what's going to happen. And and then they leave it up to the patient and their families um, to kind of make that decision, like what, what they want to go through. Uh, and, and because it changes, right? Like how Jason brought up, you know, if they're really old, it, you know, you might want to do palliative care. You know, you might not want to make them go through all that treatment and stuff. Uh, but if they're young, you know, I'm an optimistic person naturally. I would like if I was a doctor, I would tell my patient like, you know, like this is the this is the this is your chances. You know, even if it's like thirty percent, like I would try doing it because you're so young. You know, you want to try living out as much as your life as possible, try fighting it. So, I think it's a it's a difficult situation, um, and I, I don't think you know anyone intends to misguide. A patient's hope but people naturally want to be hopeful uh and you know aim for the best but i think it's 
all built on the fact that first you give them the reality. You give them practically what can happen. You know, you don't lie to them outright. Um, but it's not a bad thing to then give hope after that. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, in some cases, um, ignorance is bliss, where not knowing about a terminal illness um, really help them live out the rest of their lives without uh, worrying or hopelessness. But I've seen many patients who, once they find out about an illness like cancer or uh, something like that, um, they really gain a new appreciation for life. Uh, they start to appreciate the little things. They spend more time with their family. And they're able to come to terms with their illness before they finally uh, pass away. So I think it really depends on the person themselves and how they take the news. So and sometimes withholding the information might be better for them, uh, save them from the emotional pain. But there are also many uh, other types of patients out there who would rather prefer to know and come to terms with it. And uh, they can really decide how to live the rest of their life on their own terms. First of all, I just want to say um, thank you, Jason, for, for sharing that story with us. And um, thank you, Shonvigesh and Dhruv, for, for sharing your insights on this uh, definitely delicate question that I think a lot of people may have very conflicting opinions about. So we're going to continue our, our timeline of Ivan and his treatment. We're going to carry near the end of his life. Uh, when, Ev when Ivan first when Ivan, sorry, not first, when Ivan meets with his physician near the end of his life, he notes how the doctor had cultivated himself an attitude towards his patients that he could no longer change. Do you believe that the desensitization, the desensitization of doctors towards tragedy is real and prevalent? And if you do, do you believe that this is a barrier for a physician as an empath or an effective strategy to cope with the, the tragic realities of being a physician? Okay, I, I, I'm gonna start this one off. Um, this is this is one of those things where it's really just tough on both sides, um, and you know, having you know, trying to go into this career, hopefully, <laughs> um, you, you you are forced to see both sides, and you're like, oh man, like it's tough, right? Uh, as a as a patient, you know, every single patient is going through that experience, and they're all handling it in their own different way. So when you have a doctor that just kind of like, you know, is rude about it or is just so uncaring, it doesn't feel good, you know, because you're just such in a stressful situation. And for you, it could be happening for the first time, something very serious or even something light. You know, people take it differently. But on the, on the, in the, in the, in the, in the side of the physician, that's tough be, to, to delve yourselves into your work like that and you know, be able to go home mentally sane every day, you know, after years of practice, right? You see some, like, tough stuff. Um, even in, like, I think all of us can agree, even in our shadowing experiences, you know, like, we've seen, like, pretty dark stuff. So imagine doing that for, you know, 20, 30 years practicing. Like, it, it gets to you if you just emotionally are so involved in the process. And so I don't... Um, from what I've seen, at least, to answer the question, I just think desensitization is like, it's just part of the process. It's not even like something a doctor controls or something. It's just, it happens. It, it, it's inevitable, right? Um, 
so many people like there's just so many like quotes from residency that people say right and they're always like you know one thing that you know make sure that you get out of it is like don't drown in your own work otherwise you won't come out of it alive and people literally like say things that dramatic because apparently residency is that tough and um, the work and treating that many patients is really that difficult and uh, I was talking to a pediatrician one time from my own personal experience and there's this like this newborn child um and because this is in india it, it gets like dengue fever and it was like pretty much about to die this is the first time that i saw like a child um on his deathbed right and the mom is from like a low socioeconomic standing i mean she was crying right this and this is the first time that i've experienced this so that's something that's probably like forever scarred in my mind because it was just such a harrowing experience. It's like, wow, like, how, you, you, I don't know, I can't describe it. It's just that difficult. And I asked the doctor, like, a couple, of, you know, a little bit after, like, how does he deal with stuff like that? And he just really calmly said, like, you know, I just don't bring my work into my life afterwards. So there is just that kind of distance that I, I totally understand that doctors have. I think, in my opinion, it's a necessity that they need to have that to be able to practice for years and on and without like, you know, being mentally hurt themselves. Um, but on the other hand, though, like, that doesn't mean that they should be cold and uncaring. Like, and they should definitely like, understand the patient's situation as much as possible. And from what I've seen, like really older doctors that have been practicing for a while, they're actually, even though they're like the most distant, they're also the most caring because they've seen patients in those situations before and they know the right words to say, the right things to do. Um, and they, they're able to read the patients the best. So they know like, oh, is this, is this lady like uh, emotionally unstable or is this man like, you know, hiding information or is he like, is he not feeling well from that explanation? I feel like they're able to like pick up on those things a lot more skillfully than uh, younger doctors. And so um, it's not like they throw away their empathy. Um, so I think it's a really interesting phenomenon, really, this whole like dichotomy between distancing yourself but also trying to show as much care and respect to your patients yeah i would agree with that that um desensitization is definitely um a part of the process as physicians get exposed to more and more tragedy on a daily basis um but i think uh desensitization does not necessarily mean that they become apathetic to the needs of the patients the emotional needs um so if physicians find uh, new ways to cope with that tragedy. Um, they become more emotionally stable when they um, are faced with tragedy. Um, but they still, uh, deep down, they care for that patient. Um, they're not apathetic towards them. And I think that's an effective strategy to dealing with patients. Um, visit, uh, patients who have just been uh, broken, who have just been told some uh, bad news about their health, they need that emotional stability coming from the physician to guide them down the right path. Um, sort of like an anchor point. And I think uh, physicians over time, they learn how to deal with tragedy through experience. And so um, they become more in touch with their uh, emotions. And so while they make, so I wouldn't really call it desensitization, but rather a different way of coping with the tragedy. Yeah, I was initially going to disagree with um the question, but as I heard what Dhruv and what Shanmugesh said, um, I kind of, I I rather um, say that the word desensitization, desensitize, 
physicianization is not necessarily the right word to use because I don't think physicians are necessarily desensitized to death. No person, unless they're um, other extenuating circumstances, are really truly desensitized to death because death is pretty much a fear and almost it's a natural fear in almost every single living being, right? Um, I think that rather than desensitized, uh, being desensitized by death, they rather, uh, like Drew said, get in touch with their emotions, right? And really learn how to deal with it without really throwing it off and acting as if it's another day in the, uh, in the job, right? Because if you are a physician who does that, you're a bad physician, right? And all in all. Um, I really think that you have to be able to know, truly deal with death to be able to become a physician. And obviously that, uh, that comes over time. Um, one of my uh, high school biology teacher, actually, uh, I think she went through all of medical school. She even got her, um, um, I believe she even got her uh, medical degree. And I think one day she was volunteering at this, um, uh, uh, this there's care facility and this person that she was super, super, super close with built an amazing relationship with this, um, person, uh, passed away. And immediately after that, she kind of realized that she couldn't become a doctor because she didn't have really the facilities to deal with death. And I, I, I believe that a lot of people, a lot of people can't really take it, which is why a lot of people choose not to go into medicine. And which is why my biology teacher chose to um, not pursue medicine, rather uh, pursue teaching, right? Um, so I really think that if you are a physician, you kind of have to be able to deal with death and not necessarily be desensitized towards death. And uh, like Shamu said, with his uh, his situation where his doctor said this, uh, he his his uh, physician that he shadowed said, "I like to keep um, my work separate from uh, my life." I feel like if a lot of physicians bring it into their life, um, it really hurts them um, emotionally and sometimes physically to know that you tried everything you could do to help someone. And they passed away, and that could really take a toll on your mental health. So as long as you know how to deal with it, and at the end of the day, still be able to um, interact with your patients so that they get the best treatment in all aspects, uh, emotional aspects and the physical aspects, I think that uh, there definitely isn't a problem with that. Okay, let's continue. Uh, this is our last question for this interview, and, and it's about uh, Ivan's perspectives of dying right near the end. And he describes dying uh, through two different perspectives. First, despair and the expectation of an incomprehensible and awful death, and hopefulness and a keen fascination with all the workings of the body. As a physician, how do you imagine balancing the limitations of medicine with your innate hope and scientific curiosity uh, for the workings of a human body. Uh, meaning, for example, when facing a dying patient, do you reach a point where you accept the limitations of medicine and decide that no future treatment should be carried? 
Or do you believe that the scientific nature of your role as a physician means that you can never accept the status quo? Um, I'll start by saying um, I don't think there's a point where uh, a physician decides that no further treatment should be carried, but rather the type of treatment should be changed. Um, so when treating terminal diseases, um, there comes a point where uh, palliative care becomes more important than actually trying to get rid of the disease because um, actually trying to cure the disease poses a, there's a very little chance of that occurring. And at that point, um, rather it's taking care care of the patient's physical um, suffering and emotional burden, so rather relieving them of any pain during the last moments of their life, um, helping them to come to terms with their uh, prognosis, and really giving them the support they need, because at that point, um, the limitations of medicine mean that there really is no other option um, due to time constraints or the fact that uh, that research simply hasn't been developed yet. And so I think uh, knowing at what point that treatment uh, path should change is a very difficult decision for physicians to make. And it's really only learned through experience. Um, because as much as medicine is constantly evolving, um, it continues to take time to develop these new treatments. And so time is the biggest factor. Um, but I don't think a physician should ever really accept the status quo. They should always always realize that uh, there are advancements that can be made, there are improvements that can be done, um, but they have to realize the feasibility of those advancements and how long they will take and so how they should treat patients um, until then. And so I think palliative care is a really important part of that where it's just making sure that the patient lives pain-free during the end of their life. Yeah, I would love to add to Drew's point um, about um, it's not necessarily physicians giving up. Uh, it's more of them, or it's not them like choosing new different types of like experimental treatments or anything like that. It's just choosing uh, a new feasible, uh, a feasible treatment. Um, see, I believe that there's only so much that physicians can really do. Obviously, physicians are extremely curious people. They always want to learn. You're, you're never going to stop learning new things as a physician. But when you're, when someone's well-being is in your hands and um, you're, you're making this decisions in this person's, or you're, you're suggesting decisions in this person's um, treatment, you have to be very careful with what you are trying to do in order to um, make sure that they can, uh, their well-being is preserved. Because if it's at the end of someone's life, you can't really, unless the, your uh, patient wants to, you can't really say, hey, um, I know this experimental treatment that um, uh, you can take if you really, really want to um, like live longer, right? That's not necessarily entirely feasible, even though a lot of people um, do opt into that. But I really believe that... Um, there's lots and lots and lots of curious people, right? Obviously, there's not necessarily just the physician, but there's also research, right? There's also um, other aspects of medicine, biomedical medicine, clinical or biomedical research, clinical research that uh, a lot of um, what this question is diving into uh, ties into because um, researchers are the ones who can uh, think of, of new 
uh, different types of treatment for these uh, patients, while physicians can only suggest the best already proven, time and time again proven treatment for the physician. So uh, obviously, every single person wants to see uh, their patient, every single physician wants to see their patient uh, do the best that they can, but there's only so much that they can do with the um, tools that are provided for them. So um, yeah, I think that uh, physicians are limited by what they can provide for the patient, but they're never going to be satisfied. Um, but obviously you can't, you can't really just like, Hey, let me uh, do this experimental procedure on you and then, uh, get hit with like malpractice, uh, lawsuits and like harm the patient, obviously. So that's definitely not, um, uh, that's definitely something that physicians have to be careful of. Yeah. Um, you guys made yeah, pretty much the, the same point. Um, just quickly give my opinion. Um, again, I, this basically what Jason said, someone else's life is in your hands. Um, so you can't really go about, you know, making whatever decisions that you want to make. Um, really ultimately it should, and I think it does especially come down to, uh, the patient, right? Patient and, and their family sometimes, uh, what decision that they think is best. Um, and I, I really feel like it's very patient centric these days. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's bad, that's like good, but that's like the way it's turning, right? Before, like maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was a lot, I feel like doctors had a lot more freedom and they could like do a lot more with patients that they wanted to do. Which but these also days, caused it's, a lot of like uh, controversy with especially like African-Americans, you know, like the syphilis. Um, the Tuskegee um, syphilis study. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like consent issues. I mean, that's, that was like research, but even just with like, uh, have you guys ever read the the play, the wit play, right? Like that's like an example of like doctors taking it too far sometimes for the sake of like, you know, oh man, I, they, they don't care about the patient anymore, right? They just want to, they just want to cure the disease in whatever way possible, right? Even if it seriously injures the, the patient along the way. So that's the kind of thing that like, yeah, being patient centric is very good because, well, again, at the end of the day, we're trying to help people, right? Not diseases. Um yeah, that's pretty much yeah. Once again, I just wanted to to thank all three of you for your time. I know you must be must be very busy in this program. Um, thank you again for listening. I think the the viewers will 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 definitely enjoy listening to your insights uh, on the medical perspectives of the death in Ivan Illich.